The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So uh, today, uh, the first Sunday of October, is the first day of what's called Earth Care Week. The Vipassana communities in the United States, maybe around the world, uh, some years ago decided to celebrate or honor this first, the first, starting from the first Sunday of October, the week to kind of concentrate our collective uh, interest in caring for the planet, for the earth, and so it's called Earth Care Week. So I thought I would give a talk on this topic, and before I do, I can, uh, it's kind of nice, that kind of a coincidence, that on Wednesday, uh, we, make there, we had a completed uh, installation on our roof of solar, <coughs> solar electric panels, and uh, Wednesday they got all hooked up, and and uh, a few days later we now get regular updates about the electrical production for this building, and probably the electrons for these lights in here are now coming from the panels on the roof, and um, and so we get these regular updates, and uh, it's kind of cool to read them, and it tells how many uh, how much carbon dioxide we have not pumped into the oxygen. <laughs> So that's kind of nice to see and see kind of the Im- that kind of impact. The um, <clears throat> so uh, I think about the natural world, the non-human world, in similar ways to how I think of our human hearts. Uh, our heart not only pumps the blood that keeps us alive our hearts pumps the blood that keeps the heart alive, keeps itself alive. So in the same way, uh, the environment, uh, we are kept alive by the natural world and the natural world operates, when the, and at the natural world operates in a balance that keeps itself alive. If the heart is sick, we are sick. And if the environment is sick, we as individuals and as communities become ill. If we live unconcerned with the health of our heart, the heart might not last. If we live live unconcerned with the health of our environment, our environment as we know it and as we depend on it won't last. The Buddha told a story, kind of a fable, of a time when there was a very large fruit tree. Apparently it covered, I don't know, like acre or something, the canopy, it spread out wide, it provided shade, and it provided fruit to the people. And all the people had to do was go up to the tree and reach up and pull down fruit. And there was plenty of fruit for people who lived nearby. And then one day, someone came and um, some greedy person came along and took all the fruit off the tree. And that's when this, the fruit, the tree, stopped producing fruit. So that's a nice story. Very nice. It's <laughs> a nice uh, kind of uh, kind of allegory for our relationship to the environment. That if we take what you know, take it carefully, and that might work. But if we are greedy in what we take and take more than we should and more than is appropriate, then it's not sustainable, and something stops 
producing. And certainly we've had lots of examples of this down through the millennia of people who have taken too much and uh, then the whole civilizations have been destroyed because they overused uh, their environment. I grew up uh, on the coast of the, part of my upbringing, coast of the Adriatic Sea, and uh, beautiful, beautiful islands with bare rocks. Uh, 2,000 years ago, there were beautiful, beautiful islands with soil and trees, and, um, but then they overgrew over, uh, grapes on these islands, and the soil washed away eventually, and, um, and now they're beautiful islands with very little life on them. Um, so I think of caring for the earth, uh, that caring for the earth is an alternative to some of the other ways that humans have related to the planet. It's an alternative to exploiting it, being unconcerned with the impact we have on it. It's an alternative to taking the earth for granted. And it is an alternative to being ignorant about the dynamic interactive balancing act of natural forces that keeps the earth's ecosystems healthy. And this idea of ignorance, being ignorant of uh, you know what's really going on here in terms of what sustains us as human beings and as communities and what uh, our impact is that's detrimental. Um, and it's pretty easy to be ignorant and oblivious about our, what sustains us and what supports us in this wonderful way in which we kind of depend on the natural world. And, um, and certainly I was growing up, part of my growing up was in Los Angeles. And um, it was remarkable how little I understood about what sustained our lives there and what impact it had. Uh, the seed of beginning to change that is when I went to college and I was uh, brushing my teeth in the communal bathroom of the dorm and someone walked by as I was brushing the teeth and I had the water running and, uh, and very warmly and kindly said to me something about how, um, you know, you might want to turn off the water while a toothbrush is in your mouth. And that had never occurred to me. That was like a strange idea. <laughs> And, uh, and I wondered, that's made me wonder about, you know, where did that water come from? I'd never, I'd never given any thought to it. Then later I learned that having grown up in, when I grew up in Los Angeles, that there were, there were water war, uh, wars in California, in Owens Valley, and horrible things happened uh, in order to put in the water systems and supported Los Angeles. And, and uh, still there's a kind of wars going on with Arizona and different states around the water that, and Northern California, it's, it's very complicated. Um, and, uh, and huge infrastructures put in. And at the point being, I had no clue when I lived in Los Angeles. I had absolutely no interest, it never crossed my mind. You know, just water is there and they just take it for granted. Um, So, um, so that when I came to college then, after that little incident brushing my teeth, <laughs> I started taking environmental studies classes. And I was further surprised 
how little I knew about the unseen impact of our lives. Uh, I'd never given any, any thought whatsoever to what happened when I flushed my toilet. You know, once it's gone down the toilet, it's not my business. It's just gone, gone, gone. Um, I knew nothing about what happened to the trash after I put it in the garbage can. It never occurred to me. No one ever told me I should be concerned or be, think about it. So it was very easy to be oblivious and ignorant about that kind of Im- impact, the way that I was, I was raised. And, uh, and I knew nothing about uh, what it took to grow the food that I ate or about the farmers and the farm workers who uh, brought it and made it, grew it and harvested and all that. Um, I had never considered, never even never considered, had any idea that there were limits to how much our natural resources were available to us. I just kind of assumed that everything was provided and there was, you know, no thought whatsoever. And I had never considered the impact of a million or 10 million hundred million people driving the gas-guzzling cars of their early 70s. Now, it seems very strange that I would say that, but that was really a symptom of the times and location where I kind of lived here in this country, Uh, the obliviousness of it. I think almost it was the kind of, it was created, the system was created in this way, so some of us, uh, the more privileged, could be ignorant of, you know, what it took. We just took it for granted and we were supposed to have a, you know, prosperous life kind of without any concern. And um, so that's how it was when I was 18. Um, but uh, in, uh, in, and I started pursuing a degree in environmental studies and I was uh, very aware that it was just a burgeoning new field in our society. And uh, it was kind of the beginning of something. It maybe started some years before I got involved, but it was really a new, brand new thing. And, um, and it brought a new perspective to understanding the natural world. One that I see now that my children, you know, in the last years have been growing up here in the schools at Redwood City. And uh, they get a lot of uh, this, and uh, they understand quite well some of these aspects of what's going on in a way that uh, when I was being raised, was not part of the education whatsoever. Even so, I think that our society, it's probably fair to say that as a society as a whole, we remain pretty ignorant about so much about the impact we have and what sustains us and, and our role in this environment. And uh, as this is supposed to be a kind of a Buddhist talk, Buddhist Earth Care Week talk, uh, I figured that the kind of the, at least as I considered it last night, that the the, uh, the way that I have access to talking about this would be to talk a little more about my own story and my own relationship to the environment and how it changed over the years. Because it was very much changed even more through my Buddhist practice, and in particular the years I spent in um, in the wilderness or in the adjacent to the wilderness, living in Buddhist monasteries. And I had this wonderful uh, benefit of living in these wilderness areas where I spent uh, a lot of time, uh, certainly living in the wilderness, but also uh, we often had days off in the monastery. We'd have uh, often uh, days off every five days. And I spent days and days and days, many, many, many for years, 
hiking, walking in the mountains by myself in the wilderness. And um, I just did it because I enjoyed it. And, um, but in retrospect, it had a big impact on me. And then together with doing that was meditating. Uh, sitting in meditation halls in the middle of the wilderness, feeling kind of the, the you know, feeling the, the wilderness, the natural world, such an intimate and close part of my lungs breathing, of my steps walking on the, on the soil, on the bare ground over and over again, hearing the river gushing by, you know, all the time. The, um, uh, it was always kind of right there, the natural world, in a way that I don't feel here living in Redwood City where I see trees and lawns that are nice and can look up at the sky. But uh, I didn't certainly didn't feel like I was living in the natural world, the non-human natural world. Um, so one of the uh, remarkable <coughs> things, important things that happened to me living that life is that as my mindfulness grew, uh, is my self-preoccupation lessened. And what grew was a capacity for intimacy and gratitude uh, in, this, uh, in the setting I was living in. It was kind of like I'd come out of meditation and I would encounter this natural world and my mind would be quiet. I would not be self-preoccupied in the normal ideas of the normal way. way. There was kind of an openness and in a sense of uh, kind of presence or, or clarity where I'd walk out and I would see a tree, I would see the birds, I would see the river, I would see people walking. And there was a kind of a clarity or a connectedness or an intimacy that I had not been familiar with before. And to have that intimacy with the natural world over and over again uh, was quite a remarkable lesson in a different way of relating to the natural world, different symbiosis or mutuality that can exist. Um, and as my self-preoccupation and all the different ways in which I defined myself softened and s- at least temporarily kind of disappeared, um, it, was re- it was replaced with uh, becoming part of the wider whole. That uh, I was g- became greater part of the ho- wider whole than I could ever be whole in myself. There's certainly an important stage in human life and human healing and human Buddhist practice where people feel whole in themselves. All the fragmented ways that we have, we feel whole and it can feel quite good. But there's a greater whole that can arise when the sense of separation, the sense of firm, strong definition, I'm here and the world's out there, people out there, softens as well. And there's a feeling of that the whole is a whole, that we're part of, that we are, is not us, not me, but it's kind of like we're part of this wider whole. And so as I lived in this, these monasteries, walked the lands and the mountains, there was a sense of a whole that I was kind of part of, except remarkably, uh, the sense of I wasn't part of it. it was, there was just this whole uh, that came. There was a profound shedding of me, myself, and mine, There was a sense of freedom that existed when, in a certain way, me, myself, and mine wasn't the operating principle to find my way through the world. It wasn't the center of gravity of every concern I have. Um, And it was a a world 
uh, that involved a rich inner life that was discovered when desires fell, uh, fell away. It was remarkable to discover what it's like to walk through the world and not be, at least for me it was, and not have my desires and my versions, what I wanted and not want, be at the forefront of my attention. Not have fear, uh, social fear, and all kinds of fears operate and be in the forefront of my attention how I went through the world. And I felt very fortunate to have had those years in the monastery to work through the desires, work through the fears, work through the healing I had to do, and then come out the other end and uh, feel a kind of whole or kind of freedom that was intimately connected to the natural world, the world around me. Um, One of the nice things that uh, was that um, uh, if I attributed this wholeness to myself, I broke the wholeness. You know, there was, a, there was a certain kind of self-referencing movement that seemed to actually kind of put a ripple in the field that didn't quite, you know, work. In a sense, uh, over and over again, I would feel that I disappeared uh, in this wider world. And the sense of disappearing just was exquisite. And most people don't want to disappear, I guess. But it was exquisite. Um, so realizing uh, the whole was more like not dividing up the world with my attachments and fears. So not dividing up the world. So we live in a fragmented world when it's a world that's based on desires, aversions, and fears. And um, those are there for good reasons. It's not like it's a, they're a crime to have them and they have an important role. But to only live through those divides up the world, divides up the whole. Um, living in a monastery in the middle of the wilderness, all of reality appeared to work together. We humans were part of this whole works. And I sometimes, I used to marvel living up in the mountains about this whole, the whole works, the natural environment that seemed to be in. And um, I used to marvel at, I don't think it needed us. (laughs) 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 We weren't needed in the middle of it. It, You know, there's all kinds of things it needed, I suppose, to live in balance, but it didn't really need, need us. We were kind of guests in the middle of it. So the experience of freedom in those mountains gave me the desire to live on this earth lightly. I discovered that living lightly, having few possessions, having less of an environmental impact was a joy and a support for freedom. So I discovered some feeling of freedom, some feeling of being whole. And it wasn't like I felt duty-bound to live lightly. It just seemed like that was the way of being that way. It was a way of avoiding uh, dividing up the world, losing the whole. And it was a kind of a joy and uh, happiness that I... So it was not so much a responsibility as a natural motivation. So Buddhist practice changed me And as I changed, so did my perspective of the world. And so did my sense of how to live in this world. 
It was a perspective that changed what I perceived as I left the monastery and left the wilderness. When I would drive out of the monastery, deep in the Los Padres Na- uh, National Monument, Los, Pad- Los Padres Monuments, south of Monterey, uh, I would see ways in which the whole was painful, is painful. Each, trauma, each time I drove out of the mountains, we drove by a place called China Camp that had housed Chinese immigrants who over 100 years ago had built by hand the 14-mile dirt road into the monastery before it was a monastery. And this, too, was part of the whole that I had become. What suffering and abuse, what struggles had these immigrants been subjected, subjected to? How had they been taken advantage of to get so much grueling work out of them? How was I to understand that I was relying on their hard work to have access to the wilderness and the monastery? Then I would drive into Carmel Valley and see wealthy homes and golf courses. This too was part of the whole. How do I now include the happiness and the suffering of those living these privileged lives? I felt something of the whole was crying, perhaps in the way these communities seem to live apart, seemingly unconcerned with the impact their lives have on the wider world. From Carmel Valley, I would drive through Salinas, the lettuce capital of the US, if not the world. The hardworking field workers working with unhealthy endurance in the hot sun. Nowadays, some in fear that they would be arrested before they could see their children again. The vast monocrop fields being irrigated with water slowly drawing down the water table seemed to disrupt the sense of wholeness I felt in the monastery and in the mountains. This too is part of the whole. In recent years, driving up from Salinas to the Bay Area and passing close to Mission San Juan Batista, the, uh, one of the missions here in California that the Spanish built, I wondered about the indigenous people who still live at these lands, survivors of genocide at the hands of Spaniards and white Americans. They too are part of the whole. How do these native people fit into the whole? What important place do they hold? Coming up to the Bay Area and seeing all the cars on the freeways and breathing all the smog that the wind patterns deliver to Fresno where children are getting asthma. This too is part of the whole. Buddhist practice revealed for me a holistic vision of self and the world that is only possible when there are no attachments. When we cling to anything, reject anything or anyone from our hearts and don't seek to understand what what of the whole we don't yet know, we are creating division. And we are, in a sense, breaking the whole. To grow into this whole and to stay close to this whole that comes with freedom, comes with a freedom-saturated mindfulness. It helps to to care for the whole. Earth Care Week, 
is a reminder that a crucially important part of the whole is the earth itself, our natural environment, what some people call the non-human world. This earth is our home. It is our global heart, our one large pulsing global ecosystem. It is our mother from which we come. If we care for it, it will be the mother for all the humans and other life forms that will appear on this planet long after we are dead. If you want to stay close to the spiritual freedom of Buddhist practice, if you want to stay close to the whole, if you want to protect the happiness of non-attachment, please care for our home planet, for our global heart, for our mother. Learn how to live lightly by finding, jo- by finding joy and freedom in doing so. Decrease your environmental impact. Do your carbon analysis and then find ways to reduce your carbon footprint. Learn, what you, learn how what you buy may be hurting people far away. So find some way to mitigate th- this impact. Many people would like to decrease the negative environmental impact of their lifestyle. I don't believe as a society will be successful unless we can find joy and personal benefits in doing so. This means doing the work of discovering how to live lightly on this earth and caring for the welfare of others as something that nourishes us, benefits our good hearts, and contributes to society we are happy to be part of. Because I don't think it works so well to obligate people and do things out of a sense of duty. I think it kind of takes a little bit of the life out of us, that kind of heaviness. Unless a sense of obligation comes from our good heart's motivation, like of course, like we, of course I want to do this. And I believe that uh, to really sink deeply into this practice of freedom that Buddhism is about, this practice of really waking up our awareness and attention and having an awareness that wants to go out and be present for this world, that um, it is possible to discover a tremendous amount of joy in living lightly, tremendous amount of joy in not being driven by consumption and needs and wants and endless things and things that we do. A joy that comes from caring for the earth, a joy that comes from caring for the world around us. To spend time doing that, it's a delight. It's what kind of, you know, if the heart wants to sing, that's the way it sings. Once we kind of really do this work of discovering how to settle into our good hearts, relax and open to this whole that we are. But it does take interest and care And caring is a great, wonderful thing to be able to care. Spend more time caring. You'll be a lot happier. (laughs) Spend more time caring about the things you don't know. The things that you you consume, the things where you're, when you're finished with it, where things go, the impact you have, that's invisible. It's part of the whole. It's part of you. And to ignore it is to break the whole. But to be interested, try to learn that and extend out further helps heal the whole or support the whole, care for the whole. So we have this one week 
in the Vipassana world to give some conscious thought and reflection on caring for the earth, Earth Care Week, and this is the beginning of the week. And um, those of you who feel part of this wider global community of people interested in mindfulness, uh, you might want to share in this reflection for the week, and this at least this week, maybe uh, give some more thought to your environmental impact, your relationship to the environment, the natural world. Maybe spend a little bit more time uh, connecting to the natural world. That's a little bit more than, you know, an urban lawn. And, um, and see how it can nourish you and support you. See how it can be a teacher for you uh, that uh, will teach you non-attachment and freedom. So Earth Care Week. So those are my thoughts on this topic. And uh, if you'd like to make any comments or questions or testimonials, that would be great. So um, this is a bit off topic. Um, We talk in Buddhism a lot about stories in a somewhat negative way, about the stories in our heads and we um, and how they can interfere. And but you just, pardon me? The stories and? That, that interfere, that we tell ourselves, that are justifications, rationalizations, yeah, we right. get lost in them, right? But you've just told a story about yourself. I told lots of stories here. I told a story about, yeah, the, yeah. about the tree, the ancient tree. That right. And, and uh, how the, you're telling your story about how you awakened yeah. to something. So I'm, uh, can you straighten me out about the different kinds of stories and when stories are helpful and useful and when they are not? Well, it helps if you have some... That's a great question. It helps if you have some idea of what is helpful and what is not helpful, what you're looking for. So from a Buddhist point of view, there's a number of things. But uh, one was, it, does it help you become freer? Does it, or does it uh, put you more in bondage? Does it help you to wake up or does it put you to sleep? So one of the remarkable things that we can discover for ourselves is, uh, and it's, you know, uh, is we can get preoccupied and concerned with something we're thinking about. And you know, maybe once upon a time you were in a conversation with someone and you realize after a while you didn't know what they were saying because you were kind of thinking something important. So... <laughs> So, you know, or, or you knew someone, like, maybe you knew someone who did that. And, uh, and so, you know, it's po- possible to get so preoccupied in our thoughts that we lose touch with the world around us. That's a fascinating time to stop and look and be mindful and to feel that distance, to feel that, obs- that obscuration. And then it's other times where it's possible to have a story, have ideas and thoughts, and feel how it really is part of the flow of being connected. It really opens up their connection to the world. A greater intimacy comes. And you feel that rather than feeling distance, there's greater clarity or connection or feeling it touches the heart. So that's how you know the difference in these different kinds of stories. You have to see what the impact is in you when you're saying them. It's not the stories themselves, per se, but an impact. 
And if you value uh, being present and awake to what's here, what stories help with that and what stories take it away? Thank you. That helps. And so this is so, so I, the example I gave of this looking at your attention and how attention kind of gets a, feels a distance from the world or from others or obscured uh, is uh, something that you can hopefully uh, reference point you can give people who practice mindfulness because there's this heightened attention to this, these kinds of impacts on us. Good morning. I wanted to thank you for the talk that you just gave. Um, I work as a high school teacher and started teaching environmental science two years ago. And it has completely changed my life. And I can relate to the awareness piece of how much simple habit um, was ingrained with a severe impact on the environment. And it's actually been a really beautiful practice in mindfulness to pay attention to on a moment-to-moment basis what I'm doing if I'm going to the supermarket and I'm using plastic to put my produce in, which I'm just going to set aside when I get home, to um, you know how much water I use when I take a shower or when I wash my hands. And I feel that bringing this awareness into my day-to-day life actually has enhanced my mindfulness mm-hmm. practice to being more present moment-to-moment. And so I absolutely see the intersection between that and also the Buddhist practices. Right. And so, so the motivation you. then to be more careful comes from more than just obligation. Absolutely. Great. Nice. Thank you. Um, so I went to UMass Amherst in the late 70s, uh, engineering school, and uh, professors taught us that you could make electricity from the sun, and I was actually really blown away by that. And so I almost didn't believe it, truthfully. Um, so I spent many years in high tech, and finally about 12 years ago, I left high tech and went into the solar industry. So um, started off by doing residential and small commercial, and now I'm doing really large fields, like you know, five acres to 500 acres wow. of solar. So cool. pretty amazing. And a lot of that came from you know, your talks, actually, about you know, right vocation uh-huh. and doing something that felt good for my heart. So uh, I made that transition, mm-hmm. and nice really day. glad to see that you did this. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. One of the nice things about um, there's many things, nice things about what we put in the ceiling, but on the roof. But uh, it was uh, put together by uh, done by an, a nonprofit that mostly uses volunteers, kind of like Habitat for Humanity. And, grid uh, alternatives. What? Grid alternatives. Is it alternative? Is it Grid Alternatives the company that did it? No, no, no. We need batteries for that, right? No, no, there's a, there's a, a, a group that has, uses volunteers to do solar projects. That yeah. they, they're called Grid Oh, the name. Yeah. No, I don't think it's the name, no. No, Sunworks. Sunworks. Sun, Sunworks. Sun, sun yeah. oh, one thing I, I, I saw uh, was um, I always thought that these windmills were just kind of for show. I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, I thought that they were, I, I thought they were a kind of like a, something that people were trying to do. Um, and then I saw a show, they showed its windmill, they said every time it goes around once, it produces enough energy to power a house for a whole day. And this thing is just going around and around and around. I was like, oh, this must really work. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, mean, I, was, I I just thought that, I, I thought they were kind of, 
okay, they, they, I thought you made, like, flour from them or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, anyway. They used to. Yeah. They used to, but yeah, yeah there's these massive fields of uh, windmills now in different places and off the coast of Denmark and England, and I think now off of the New England also coast, they're building them, and lots of electricity being produced. Uh, my husband and I have had a compost pile for over 50 years, and it was particularly on bad days, I could think the earthworms are doing good things. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. They'll probably be doing good things long after we're gone. <laughs> like to share some thoughts as a biologist. Um, <clears throat> I've taught introductory bio for many years, and one of the favorite parts for me is teaching about plants and how they are essentially the original solar cells uh, and how beautifully designed they are and how efficient they are in grabbing solar energy and converting it into uh, carbohydrates. Uh, so Plants are uh, an important, obviously, an important part of our ecosystem, and we should appreciate them each time we look at one. I took, I, I took I, I, when I was in college, I took a um, botany class, and had this big blackboard, and they had they were doing the, I guess, the oxygen carbon dioxide cycles, and you know, just you know, there was big di- big chalk diagrams on the board, and you know how how this works and all that, and. And you know the short story is that uh, the plants take in CO2 and they pump out oxygen as a byproduct, and then um, <clears throat> and so that's what we d- we breathe is the oxygen from the plants. So we were doing all this. I was kind of absorbed in this study in this class. So that little bit being absorbed kind of explains a little bit what happened to me next. But I walked out into the courtyard where there were these big California oaks, and I was I, s- I froze in my. Sp- in my spot and just looked at one of these oak trees and it was an awe and the, and what welled up inside of me was this idea that I could do without an arm without a kidney and all kinds of things I can do without but I can't do without those trees making oxygen so where do I begin where do I end and where does a tree begin where does a tree end and where does you know I begin and I felt like wow and I was just my mind was kind of stunned at the at how int- deeply interrelated my life was with those trees, and and um, you know how dependent our lives are and important they are, and it was kind of a sacred moment for me standing there in the post botany class <laughs> <laughs> reverie. <laughs> I'd like to go back to the compost piles. Uh, <laughs> I tried that, 
and I, I drew a lot of varmints into um, unwelcome guests into my backyard. And so I decided to stop that. And then I uh, remembered what my grandmother did. Uh, I used to love going to her garden with her, and it was really close to our house. And, um, and all she did was she took every day, she, draw, she took all the leftovers from her cooking, etc., and, uh, and she took it to the garden and dug a hole and put all the stuff in. And I thought, I'm going to do what my grandmother taught me. And that's what I do, and it's so wonderful. And aside from the fact that I get, I, I reuse all of the stuff from my cooking and so on, um, uh, I also get surprises. <laughs> like, I've got potatoes growing in my garden <laughs> that I didn't plant. <laughs> and so I've got potatoes growing. I can't. Th- there's so many little things that, that that all these surprises. So it makes my garden so such an experience. Mm-hmm. I go out there every day and just look and see what's going on today. <laughs> and I have a beautiful garden, and I've got a lot of tomatoes right now, and they're so wonderful and so nice. This delightful surprise. That's nice. So then I'll end with a little. What this reminds me of it. Uh, in Los Altos, there's a wonderful place called Hidden Villa. And uh, many schools will bring their kids there. And it's a little bit of a farm. They have go- a garden. And you know, it's c- kind of on the edge of the, these coastal wil- wilderness, kind of. And, um, and it was one of the first places, uh, people who started it, where it had a very strong um, uh, motivation for social justice. And back in the 1940s or 50s, when they started this part of it, they brought inner-city kids from all over the Bay Area who normally don't have access to this kind of life in order to share the life with them and show it to them. And they had they have summer camps for inner-city kids there. They started early on. And um, <clears throat> so we used to do retreats there, and uh, silent retreats. And then on weekday days, at a certain point in the mid-morning, these school buses would arrive just very close by to where we did our meditation. And we would hear the kids getting a, give, being given a tour of uh, the gardens and all that. And they would be so happily yelling and screaming. And, and they would all get cul- cul- uh, culminate with all the kids together yelling something like, Thank you, soil. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, uh, the idea of sharing our lovely connection to the earth with others is a wonderful thing. So thank you for sharing your compost story. And <laughs> I hope we all can sh- uh, share ourselves and support and bring joy to others in this wonderful connection we have to the world and to ourselves, to each other. Thank you all. Mm-hmm.